Well, good morning, Franklin City Church. I am thrilled to be here. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. Uh, about a month or so ago, when Pastor Grant approached LifePoint about seeing if there was a, a pastor that was able to come teach, uh, Jim approached me and said, man, I, I would be thrilled to. Because, you see, I see you guys an extension of, of my own family. Uh, for some of you, like Don and Jonah, I am your son. Uh, for, for some of you, I was your former youth pastor. To others, uh, a fellow churchgoer. Um, to, to, to guys like Grant, uh, I was a used car salesman. Uh, if he's told you that story before, uh, the yellow car was my first car as well that he used to drive. It, it, it served us well until he took Brittany to school for the first time and the, and the, and the uh, muffler fell off. Um, there are guys, you guys know Gary and Sharon very well. Uh, Gary has such a dear place in my heart. He led my wife and I, Angel, uh, through our premarital counseling, and, uh, which I think was so instrumental in, in preparing ourselves for a, a Christ-centered marriage. Uh, Gary was also the first person to ever give me the opportunity to preach. Uh, this was at Grace Evangelical years ago. He was discipling uh, a group of four or five of us young men. And uh, at the culmination or at the end of that study, he said, you guys are ready. Let's do it. And so uh, he, he gave us the first opportunity uh, to, to preach. Uh, Gary also led in uh, our marriage ceremony. And so uh, we traveled together in 2016 to Uganda. And so the last time I stepped foot in this building, uh, it feels like it's been far too long, but was uh, right after that trip returned, we came and gave a recap of our mission in Uganda. So as you guys continue to pray this week, uh, you guys know Justin Williams well. He was here over the summer. Uh, he and his wife and family are leaving, I believe, on Tuesday to head back to Uganda. And that uh, is a little bit uh, about kind of how I ended up here, actually. Um, my wife and I were married 14 years ago, and at that time, um, I had graduated from Butler University. She graduated a couple years after I did. And I went into banking. Uh, I was a finance and economics major, and so I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Until 2012, while I was serving alongside Justin and the middle school and high school ministry at Grace, uh, he, he invited me to come on a missions trip with him to Uganda. Uh, this would have been our second trip, our first international one together. And I said, Justin, I don't know, man. I don't know about going to Uganda. I've got a young family. People that go to Uganda, like, they get bit by mosquitoes or snakes. They, people die there. So I, I, was, I was very hesitant to go. But uh, after a lot of prayer and, and meeting with some other uh, people to talk about that, uh, God allowed me to go and use that trip to open my eyes. Returning from that trip, I told Angel, I said, wow, this, this trip was not what I expected. I expected to continue in volunteer ministry, primarily focusing on moms and dads. Um, I, as I had been serving in the youth ministry capacity, I just saw this cycle where we've got to get the moms and dads on board uh, with discipling their own children. And so I thought that's why God wanted to teach me when I was in Uganda. But I came back and I realized, whoa, I saw families thriving there with children that were my kids' age. I said, okay, what does God want us to do? Maybe, maybe God is, is saying, okay, AJ, now's the time to, 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 to retire from banking at the age of whatever I was, late, late 20s, and, and to go to seminary and become a pastor. Or maybe he was calling us to continue in banking so that we could support global and, and local missions. Or the third craziest idea was maybe, just maybe, he was calling us to the mission field. And so we prayed about that for a very long time. Uh, and, and at which time we thought, you know, maybe we would be applying to become missionaries in Uganda. We, we went down that road. God kept us here. And little did I know that, uh, you know, as, as time would progress, 
my heart was ready. I said, Lord, I'm willing. Where do you want me to go? And a few years ago, um, our pastor for administration at LifePoint Church was going to the mission field, and someone approached me and said, AJ, you're a finance guy. Why don't you come serve at LifePoint uh, for our administration? I said, that, let me think about it. It sound, sounds like an in, intriguing opportunity. Went through the process of interviewing with the elders, and that was a good, that was a good learning process. And, and, and Pastor Jim said, AJ, uh, we would love to have you on staff when, when Chris transitions to the mission field if you'd like to accept it. Sounds great, Jim. I was hoping and praying for that. He said, I hate to ask you this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask anyway, because the elders wanted me to. They said, uh, throughout your time um, going through the interview, uh, you, you have a heart for discipleship and teaching. AJ, what do you think about, instead of doing administration, what do you think about working with high school students? And I said, wow, that is, that is quite a bit different uh, than, than, what, I, than I, what I thought I was going to do. And, and I was actually sitting in the garage when I was having this, or not in the garage, the driveway when I was having this conversation with Jim. And so I walked back into my house because I just had lunch with my wife. And I said, honey, what do you think about this? And uh, we, we talked about it. We said, well, if God's calling you to full-time ministry for the rest of your life, um, both have value. Both have a lot of value. Um, but, but pouring into the lives of students and their parents, I, I thought was going to best equip me for a lifelong in, in vocational ministry. And so I serve. I've, I've been serving at LifePoint now uh, for about two and a half years, and I love what I do. And I love partnering with churches like Franklin City Church and others around the South Side as we behold God's glory and we take the gospel to our community. And so today, as we head into the last quarter of the year, I don't know about you guys. Again, I'm a nerd. I'm a numbers guy. I look at, okay, what did we accomplish in 2021? Let's look at a budget for 2022. What are some things that went really well this year? What can we plan for in the year ahead? And so maybe some of you are like that. Maybe 2021 was a particularly good year. Maybe as compared to 2020, that wouldn't be hard to do. Um, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a rough year. Maybe you had COVID like Kevin a couple weeks ago. I'm glad he's, Pastor Kevin, I'm glad he's recovering and, and some of you guys as well. But now is a time to look back and maybe look ahead to some fresh start on some new habits. And so uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually going through a text with some high school students and God has laid this text again on my heart to, to bring it to you today from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I have the privilege of sharing you with you a message about training yourselves for godliness. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll open our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you help us today to grow as a people committed to beholding your glory, to building up the body of Christ, and to blessing the city and this world. You alone are worthy of all worship and praise, and help us to live with a constant refrain in our hearts that you must increase, but we must decrease. As John the Baptist prayed these seven simple but really hard words to pray, will you help us to live so that people don't think about us at all? All they think about, Lord, is, is, is Jesus and beholding his His. his work done on the cross. God, I pray that you would increase through our lives, that your glory would be made known, that your love would be made known, that your name would be made known, and our names would become less. God, I pray this, I pray for us, less and less about us, and more and more about you, because you are the only one who is worthy of glory. You're the only one whose name matters. You're the only one who can save. You're the only one who is Lord and King over all. 
You're the only one who is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration. Lord, help us to share the gospel faithfully. Help us to not be silent with it. Help us to speak it, and as we speak it, help us to plead with people to become saved by your grace. We especially pray for our lost neighbors in this community that you would use us to share the gospel and that they would receive the gospel by responding and repenting and trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we pray for the other churches in this community, especially uh, Redeemer Church, as they open their doors for the first time today, that people would walk through those doors that would never step foot in a church, that are just exploring what is this that's been a church in the making, and that they will walk in and hear the gospel proclaimed and respond to it. Heavenly Father, help us as a church body that you would give us this kind of drive, this kind of motivation today, that we may uh, be driven with a desire and a passion to see people around us come to know Christ. Lord, we help us to hold on to your word. Your word is constant. People come and go. Things come and go in our lives, but your word remains forever. Not only hold on to the word, but hold fast to it, Lord. Help us in this. Help us to proclaim it. This is what's going to matter for eternity. Their eternity of those who have not heard this gospel is dependent upon believing the word. We pray that you would draw people to yourself through the proclamation of your word. We praise you, O God, for the constancy of your word. Lord, help us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Teach us to set our minds on your thoughts and not our own. God, we pray, help us in this, that we pray for humility of our mind. Your ways are so much higher and better and truer and purer. And so we pray, God, conform and transform our thoughts to be like your thoughts our ways to be like your ways. Keep us, we pray, from intentionally or unintentionally, knowingly or unknowingly, embracing the things of this world and instead embrace uh, your thoughts, O oh God. We pray that you help us to think in a way that is totally different from this world. Lord, as we look into Paul's first letter to Timothy, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the truth that's here. Help us to get this right. Help us to train bodily and physically, like there is some value, but we pray that you would help us to train for godliness like it's infinitely more valuable. That you would make us more and more like Jesus, more and more every day through our time with you in prayer, through our time with you in your word. God, you must become greater and we must become less. So Lord, we ask these things in your almighty name. Amen. All right, so... I told you a little bit about myself. Uh, some of you know this. Some of you might not. I love running. Uh, I've loved running ever since high school. Middle school, I, I ran, but I didn't love it yet. Um, and some of you might think, okay, I've got six wonderful children and a beautiful wife. So with six kids, you might think that, that running might just be necessary conditioning uh, to be an effective parent. Um, while I do enjoy that, man, there are so many good memories. Uh, I mean, I, I get to run with everyone in my family, from, from Katie down to Eden, who's two. So we've got 15, 12, 10, 8, 6, and 2. Those are the ages of our kiddos. And, and all of them love to be outdoors. Um, and so, uh, again, just from, from my family to yours, thank you for inviting us in, um, and, and we look forward to meeting you guys afterwards. So, so as I mentioned, this love of running has just developed throughout my life. It's become something that I look forward to almost every day, um, as much as I can. I did throw out my back a couple days ago, so it's been a few days, but you know, hopefully I'll get back into it. 
Some of my favorite runs of all times come with lots of memories, sometimes funny, sometimes scary. Uh, There are a lot of funny things that can happen, like being chased by dogs or geese or uh, a homeless person at a hammer was chasing after me one time. That was a little bit scary. Um, There are times where I'd be running downtown. As I mentioned, I was a banker for 17 years in downtown Indianapolis. I'd run to the, the White River and go for runs. Sometimes it was hot, so I'd take the shirt off and put it behind a light post. And uh, as I was circling back around, I'm a mile away from the bank and realized maybe that hammer-wielding homeless person stole my shirt because my shirt wasn't there anymore. And this is a problem you might see because I didn't run with a cell phone and I work on the fourth floor of an office building right off of Monument Circle. So I'm thinking, how am I going to get back to my office with no shirt, no cell phone? How am I going to do this? Thankfully, though, every day, I, I guess it's, it's good when you're kind to uh, pe- all people, but particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses that were uh, sitting on the corner right there by the <laughs> JW Marriott. I say hi to them every day, every day. I try to engage them in conversation when I'm stuck at the stoplight. And I'm thinking as I, I lost my shirt, I'm like, I know, I know who I can ask. And so I went to the, I said, I know this is really weird. I'm sorry, I don't have a shirt on. Could I use your cell phone? And to which my assistant, who normally screens all phone calls and doesn't answer them, he saw this weird number and he, he picked up and he's like, AJ? I'm like, yeah, it's me. I need you to bring me a shirt out to the Monument Circle. So he did. So, okay, so there's a lot of, of funny things that can happen. I, I've enjoyed uh, doing races with my wife. Uh, actually, one of my f- favorite memories of running was just this last year when we were on a, a little... Uh, date getaway weekend in French Lick, Indiana. We had this awesome run um, in French Lick uh, up, a, up in the golf course. It was before the season had opened, and I'm not sure we were supposed to be on the golf course, but nobody else but the grounds crew were there, and it was just beautiful. There was this mist, and it was, it was, it was one of my greatest memories. We even started running together when we were um, in college, uh, running along the White River uh, one day. Um, the funniest things, I, I think I shrieked like a little girl. I'm surprised she, she still married me. Uh, when we were running down the, down the canal, I stepped on a snake as it was coming across. And, and uh, yeah, so, uh, and even running with my kiddos, uh, like Katie, for the last couple weeks, and all my other kiddos enjoyed as well. A lot of good things have happened running. But one conversation stuck out to me. Uh, it actually happened while I was in banking, and uh, I had my shirt on this day, but I stepped onto the elevator uh, with a guy uh, that was going up to, to, to my office, and he said, AJ, I see you doing this every single day. You are so disciplined. You have got to be the most disciplined person that I know. And I'm thinking, huh. About this time, I was reading Donald Whitney's book called Spiritual Disciplines, and this hit me like a ton of bricks. It's in 1 Timothy 4.8, we heard just a little bit ago, for while bodily training has some value... Godliness is, val- is a value in every way as it holds promise in this life and also for the life to come. And here I am spending hours upon hours each week pouring into physical training while if I were to honestly assess how much time I was spending with God, it would be only a small fraction in comparison. You see, at that time I was being very disciplined physically, which is a good thing but only has value in this life. What I realized, I was lacking the same discipline and commitment level to my spiritual growth, my spiritual training, which has both great value in this life and the life to come. So that was one of a handful of pivotal moments in my life that God used to recenter my focus on him. And that is exactly what I hope to do today in today's message. Uh, as, As we head into the end of this year, I hope that we'll honestly evaluate how we are investing our time right now spiritually into the the spiritual disciplines that have eternal value so hopefully today we use this as a time to step back look at our lives and refocus on what on the tasks that we have ahead because christ hasn't returned yet right and he's coming again 
And until that time comes, let, let us be found faithfully working for the kingdom. So while we probably all have bad habits that we'd like to shake, like being on our phones or social media or not getting enough sleep or overeating, there's a lot of different things that we might like to shake. You probably have some good habits too. Like brushing your teeth, for example. That's a good habit, right? In the era of masks, you probably quickly remembered if you forgot to do that, okay? Um, or, or fixing your hair or exercising. Good habits can bring with them all kinds of health and even social benefits. The same is true for our spiritual lives. If we develop good habits to devoting ourselves to spiritual disciplines, God often blesses those habits by drawing us closer to himself. So one of those benefits is being able to identify when we are being taught things that are not true. So in our passage today, we will see how Paul encouraged Timothy to discipline himself to do the things that would lead to spiritual growth. God calls us to, be, to carefully study his word and the scriptures individually and as a church so that we might grow in our relationship with him. Verse 13 says that the public reading of Scripture is a good thing, and we should devote ourselves to it. So I love how Franklin City Church prioritizes this in our scriptural call to worship and then reading right before the, the sermon. Um, so let's take another look at the first five verses of Paul's letter, first letter to Timothy in chapter 4. Please read with me. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. All right. Now, in the first five verses, uh, we see Paul warning Timothy about the root of false teaching. Our world is permeated full of false teaching. So I was preparing last night. I'm just thinking how easily Satan weaves a story of what is good versus what is truly good and now calling that not normal, right? Paul understood that the world was a battlefield between truth and falsehood. He affirmed that in latter times, the period between Jesus' first coming and will conclude with his second coming, that it would be necessary for us to practice discernment. Paul knew this because the Spirit made it clear. Matthew 24, 11 says uh, that we see that Jesus taught that the false prophets would rise up and lead many of us astray. The Holy Spirit also confirmed that some will depart from the faith. The verb depart signifies a movement away from someone or something. It involves a willful abandonment of the truth. Jesus used that same verb in a parable about the soils to describe those who believe for a while and then fall away in a time of testing. That's in Luke 8. Paul emphasized two reasons people depart from the faith. First, they pay attention to the deceitful spirits. They give heed to the lies spread by Satan, the master of deception. And the second thing is they embrace the teaching of demons. If we do not practice discernment, we will be prone to accept false teaching. Now, back in 2001, no, 2002 is when I started in banking, and I was a teller at the time. There was a banking center just off campus, and they hired me for the summer. I thought I was going to go back to my job building furniture at Staples after the summer. They ended up keeping me on, made a career of it. But anyway, how many of you guys have ever received a counterfeit bill? 
hopefully not so much anymore. Maybe you have. Maybe a lot of us are like all cards now or even like Apple Pay. But, um, but, but counterfeit bills were a thing that we had to keep a watchful eye for. When I first started in banking, uh, the, the, the manager taught me, said, AJ, um, you've got to protect the bank. There are people that are going to try to deposit money that is not real money. And, and so in order to teach you from accepting counterfeit bills, you guys have heard this story before, right? Federal agents don't study the thousands of counterfeit bills out there. What do they do? They study the real ones. They master the look of it and the feel of it um, so, that, that, so that when they see the bogus money, they can quickly detect it, right? This should remind us that the presence of false teachers in Ephesus motivated Paul to write to Timothy, right? If we know the, the real thing, it's going to be easy for us to, 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 to practice discernment so that we are not giving way to deceitful spirits. As we continue, we will see how critically important it is to be well acquainted with the teaching of God's word so that we will be better equipped to see false teaching for what it is. And if we will study God's word in a spirit of humility, we will also find ourselves growing in Christ's likeness. So what were these false teachers uh, in Ephesus telling the people? The false teaching in Ephesus appears to be some sort of uh, asceticism, the, the idea that people can please God or attain a higher spiritual state by practicing self-denial. This can be seen in verse 3 where Paul highlights how false teachers were promoting behavior that denied God's purpose for marriage and food. Both are very good things. Some of these teachers in Ephesus were influenced by the idea that spiritual things were good, but physical things were very bad, morally bad. So in a misguided effort to achieve a higher spiritual status, they labeled marriage and marital intimacy as sinful. I believe many of you guys can quickly piece together how this same thinking is permeating our culture today. What comes to mind when we think about how our culture tries to claim that something is good is actually sinful, or something that is sinful is good. You might easily start to think of false religions and cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or, 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 or Mormonism. But as we think more deeply and timely, we see threads of this in the social justice movement. We see some of this in the ideals of progressive, progressive Christianity. We see some of this even in the legalistic practices of Bible-teaching churches. God never commends an activity that contradicts his stated purpose as revealed in Scripture. Let me say that again. God never commends an activity that contradicts what the Word says. So if we're trying to figure out what God's will is for our lives or if something's good or bad, we need to look to God's Word. God ordained marriage between one man and one woman from the beginning of creation, and his blessing upon that continues today. Paul emphasized that we... Uh, that not only were the false teachers wrong about their food rules, but those rules were created, or those foods were created by God and should be received with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Rather than to deny the goodness of God's creation, a believer can delight in and enjoy it as God intended. This truth, however, is not a license to abuse the things that God has created for our enjoyment. We know uh, from other writings of Paul that he believed marriage, though not necessary for all Christians, was something good and incredibly valuable. If you want to see what Paul believes about marriage, you could look at Romans chapter 14 or 1 Corinthians 7 or Ephesians 5. Ultimately, Paul saw the teachers in Ephesus as destructive for claiming that the good things God created were actually evil and to be avoided. 
While we might be tempted to think that that teaching that calls people to refrain from certain foods or even from marriage is not such a big deal, Paul actually says in verse 1 that the roots of such teaching are demonic. He's making it a big deal. Paul says that these false teachers are hypocrites and liars uh, whose consciences are seared. In other words, Paul is saying that you can often tell false teachers by their fruit and how they live. False teachers are hypocrites, meaning they often fail to even live up to their own teaching or standards. When Paul says that their consciences are seared, he means that they are no longer able to determine right or wrong. This is an important warning for us to recenter our thinking around that the more we listen to and give consideration to false teaching. Sorry, let me just fix this so I don't keep messing with it. All right, there we go. All right. Okay, guys, what we listen to and give consideration to. This involves what are we being entertained by? What are we listening to for music? What do we consider? What are we allowing to go into our minds and our hearts, right? The more uh, likely we are to, 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 to allow um, these things to go into our, our minds, our consciences can become seared. The more likely we are to see sinful things as fine and good things as sinful because we're allowing the culture to dictate what, what is good and wrong, what is good and versus what is not good. When we misuse things God created, it's not because these things are sinful, but because our hearts are sinful and our minds are corrupted by sin. Tim Keller once said that about idols of the heart that, that, that people have taken good things and turned them into God things. When we claim that people must completely abstain from things God created as good, we are essentially buying into a gospel of works-based righteousness as we say we have to do certain things in order to receive God's love and approval. So now as we transition into the second section of chapter 4, let's reread verses 6 through 9. As we see Paul, actually 6 through 10, Paul challenging Timothy to be active in his spiritual growth and further helps us to see the value of studying the Bible both together in community and also on our own. Verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Teaching and preaching doesn't have to be harsh in order to be effective. We don't have to be beating the pulpit for you guys, for God's word to permeate into our hearts. So the Greek word translated by the ESV here as put these things before the brother in front of the brothers, indicates a gentle persuasion. Paul wanted Timothy to mix tenderness into serious warnings. He especially wanted Timothy to be a good servant of the Lord by demonstrating discipline in his own life and his teaching. And in order to do this, Timothy needed to practice two disciplines. First, he needed to be nourished by the words of the faith, meaning the gospel. No servant can be effective in his ministry if he fails to receive the nourishment of the gospel of Christ. And this is why we have to wake up reminding ourselves of the gospel 
every day. The gospel has to be woven into the conversations with our children because they have to see how the gospel can transform our lives. Second, Timothy also needed to feed on good teaching or doctrine. I've been incredibly blessed uh, over this last month to be listening to the teaching of Franklin City Church. I, I catch it on uh, while I go for runs. I like to listen to a lot of different pastors, but listening to Pastor Gary and Pastor Kevin and Pastor Grant, it, it, it has been enriching for me and encouraging for me. So, so Timothy not only had been taught the scriptures since he had uh, been a child, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but he had also followed these teachings. So when we see through the lies of false teaching and instead look to God's word for truth, we will find ourselves nourished. Simply put, studying God's word is not only essential to equip ourselves to see the errors of false teaching, but it is absolutely essential for our spiritual growth. So if Timothy, who was a faithful pastor and a church planter, and yet Paul still wrote to him to encourage him to train himself for godliness. Training implies consistency and effort. Paul is not telling Timothy to work to earn his right standing before God. We know that's not possible. That has already been accomplished. While we are justified by grace through faith alone, God calls us to be active participants in our own spiritual growth. So this brings up just a, a quick thought that deserves a brief explanation of justification and sanctification. Justification is wholly the work of God. In justification, God declares righteous those who trust in Jesus and repent from their sin. Sanctification is an ongoing process by which God begins to make us more and more into the, what he has already declared us to be righteous in his sight. So while God is the primary actor in our sanctification, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God invites us to participate in the process by obeying his commands. We also see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so God instructs us that we ought to be serving others. And lastly, as we see in, in verses four, uh, 7 through 10, we are to be disciplining ourselves to seek him in the word and in prayer, much like Paul challenged Timothy. So again, while we are justified by grace through faith, God calls us to be active participants in our spiritual growth. It's not enough to merely know the truth of the gospel, but we must consistently give energy and attention to studying and applying God's word. If Timothy, a faithful pastor, needed such training, we all do as well. Again, we look at the, the benefits of that, not only growth in our relationship with Christ, but also knowing when we see false teaching. So my primary purpose in today's message is to challenge each of you to consider some practical ways that you might train in godliness so that we live out the Bible's command and this church's mission to be a people committed to beholding the glory of God, to building up the body of Christ, and to bless this city and this world. Such training requires us to study God's word, to seek him in prayer, and to surround ourselves with people committed to following Christ alongside us. This very letter, 1 Timothy, is evidence that Timothy needed the encouragement and the spiritual investment of Paul in his own journey of spiritual growth and in his efforts to serve and lead the church at Ephesus. 
This reminds us that we need community. I love this tight-knit community. This is great. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage us in our walk with Christ and challenge us to grow. I have many men that have poured into me at different stages of my life and different levels of, of spiritual maturity. Guys like Rick Kramer, who I believe you guys have met before, uh, who's come through here. At least I know a long time ago when we were meeting at the high school, uh, he had a chance to actually preach on a sermon that was talking about consciences being seared. Now, I don't know if the, the, the archives go back that far, but that was, a, that was a message that really stood out to me. And Rick was one of those guys who never gave up on me in high school and in college, where I just, there was this constant tension between wanting to live in this world and knowing who I should be in Christ. And he never, he never gave up on me, and he discipled me so intensively while I was engaged in my bride, helping me to become the godly husband and spiritual leader that I needed to be for my bride. Guys like Justin Williams, who I mentioned before, who, living 7,700 miles away, uh, has committed his life and family to serving Christ as missionaries in Uganda. Justin and I have spent countless hours and gallons and gallons and gallons of coffee walking verse by verse through God's Word and holding each other accountable in the memorization of Scripture. Guys like Gary Walker, who I mentioned earlier, he spent months, if not years, of his life at Grace Evangelical Church discipling me and a handful of other young dads, helping us to become spiritual leaders in our own homes. Nate Gast, who you've seen here, I served alongside him in the college ministry before coming on staff. Uh, he and I and another pastor, Nate Meese, spend, spend many, many, many days uh, running together. And we, we talk on a range of topics from, from parenting to the deep mysteries of the gospel. And then there are the dozens of other guys who have approached me to help train them for godliness. It is one of the things I love most about serving as a pastor for student ministry, but it is something that I was most certainly doing decades before as a banker. It doesn't just have to start when you consider yourselves in vocational or bivocationally in ministry. This is something that just needs to be a part of who we are as the fabric of the church. I cannot stress enough the importance uh, of that, that we as Christ followers should make it a priority to seek someone younger than you that you can disciple. If you are blessed with the opportunity to be a parent, you've got the best opportunity right now to be a disciple maker of those children in your home. But I also want you to seek out someone that's older than you, or at least more spiritually mature than you, that can disciple you as well. The wisdom shared in these relationships can truly change the trajectory of someone's life for the glory of God in his kingdom. So as we circle back to verses 7 through 9, which is the central point here that Paul is trying to draw our attention to, Paul made it clear that a compromise between truth and falsehood was not acceptable. We cannot compromise. He urged Timothy to have nothing to do with these pointless or silly myths. Instead, he was to train himself for godliness. That Greek word for, for training, again, is like gymnasium, right? So Paul used that word to reinforce spiritual exercise as, a, as an essential aspect of Timothy's role as a godly leader. So, in order for us to lead well for Christ, we must learn well from Christ. That's what Paul's telling Timothy here. Hey, Timothy, if you want to lead well, you've got to learn well from Christ. Learning involves spiritual training. Spiritual training involves exercise of rigorous devotion, which leads us to have an effective impact for Christ. So Paul believed that both physical and spiritual disciplines are valuable. The training of the body provides benefits for health and strength, but those benefits don't last. We all grow tired and old. 
Our backs sometimes give out like mine did a couple days ago. But by contrast, training for godliness holds promise in this life and also for the life to come. So Paul was not suggesting that physical exercise was insignificant. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we should stay in sufficient shape to serve Jesus effectively. Paul's point to Timothy was one of prioritizing godliness as that discipline. In verse 10, we see, uh, for godliness, believers labor and strive. We don't labor to earn God's favor, but rather because we have received God's grace. Living a godly life involves an agonizing struggle against sin and Satan. Paul referred to God as the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. So God's offer of salvation is available to all people. Salvation is effective. However, it's only effective for those who place their faith in Jesus. Paul was emphasizing that no one can be saved without faith. So as we train ourselves for godliness, it's vital for us to remember that the benefits of such training are eternal. In other words, seeking God is not something that we can afford to keep putting off or give little thought to. Don't just say, hey, I'll train for godliness when I'm in my 20s, and then it's in my 30s, and then it's my 40s, and then it's my 50s, and you just, you've, you've lost the opportunity. I tell my high school students right now, I said, your sphere of influence is probably bigger than it's ever going to be right now, so don't waste it, okay? Don't waste it. The rewards for training and devoting ourselves uh, to seeking God individually in community will have an internal impact on us and the people around us as they see our hope and live in such a way. Always, prepared to, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but be ready to do it with gentleness and respect as we share the good news about who Jesus is, the Savior of all people. And now in the third and final section, let's read the last six verses of chapter 4. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, uh, since you have become dull of hearing. Uh, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's read 11 through 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Do not, oh, sorry, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul gave Timothy a robust challenge to command and to teach these things. Command was a strong word for directing others with authority. Teach was the customary word for transmitting information that could be applied. Timothy might have been reluctant to command and to teach the church in Ephesus because of his young age. First century culture valued the aged. An older teacher was generally considered wiser and more knowledgeable than a young teacher. Paul wanted Timothy to not allow 
anyone to belittle his ministry simply because he was relatively young. Paul's admonition that no one should despise Timothy's youth served as a twofold encouragement. First, it affirmed Timothy personally. Second, it was a message to the believers that Paul had left Timothy in charge as an overseer. And age is not a disqualifier from leading. The best way for Timothy to deflect the complaints was to set them an example in five ways. I almost said four. Five ways. He, he needed to set them an example, beginning with his speech. Paul expected Timothy to speak with Christ-centered authority while avoiding words that could stir strife and alienation. In addition, Timothy's conduct should be exemplary. Love was the unmistakable mark of an exemplary spiritual leader, and Paul wanted Timothy to walk in it. Faith was, an, was essential for Timothy's leadership in a culture of unbelief. His bold trust would serve as a model for both other struggling seekers. Moreover, Timothy needed to pursue purity. For the sake of the gospel, his life needed to be beyond reproach, morally. In the previous chapters of 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul tells Timothy uh, that he plans to visit him soon. But until he does, or until he did, Timothy was to give attention to three areas of, three areas of ministry. First was public reading. This would have included the Old Testament scripture and the letters that Paul had been circulating to the other churches. Public reading of scripture was the customary practice in first century congregations, and I am so glad that it is today as well. Second was the exhortation of God's word. This was a form of preaching that involved urging listeners to apply the truth of scripture, which is what I hope you see each and every week here at Franklin City Church. Third, teaching believers to understand these essential doctrines and fundamental elements of the faith. If you feel like you are lacking in any one of those areas, you belong to a church family here that is committed to building up the body of Christ as one of their top three priorities that you guys have been learning about for the last few weeks. So plug into the discipleship model here. Plug into being discipled and discipling someone else. Paul would later encourage Timothy in chapter 5 to show respect to the older people in the church. So we know that Paul is not telling Timothy to, it's a double negative, to not listen to the advice of other people. Paul's goal instead seems to be to encourage Timothy. So in the same way, I want to encourage my children and the students that I lead and their parents and all of you here today. Paul charged Timothy not to worry about what others might think about him. Instead, Timothy should simply devote himself to the job he had been sent to Ephesus to do. He had been sent to Ephesus to accomplish, to teach God's word, to encourage people in the faith, and to set an example for them of what it looks like to live on a mission for Christ. And so I leave you with one final exhortation from 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct and love and faith and purity. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Let me pray for us.